Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Risha Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Ken Korber, president of the Association of Family Practice PAs and NPs, and a clinical instructor at Mount St. Joseph University PA program in Cincinnati. Uh, Ken also wrote a children's book, which is pretty awesome, called Grace Fights COVID-19, a training manual for the musical adventures Bug Squad. I, ho- I hope I-, I said that just right. Uh, we're going to actually be talking a lot about kind of the role family practice plays, learn about PAs and NPs and how they fit into the healthcare landscape, and what's ahead really for those professions uh, given COVID-19 and-, and really beyond that. So Ken, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So let's let's just start out by by understanding your own career path and and what got you into becoming a PA. Oh, long long story because I'm an old guy. So it started with a, a just a an inherent like for science. My dad was a biology teacher, so that kind of drove the conversations at home when I was a young kid and was interested in med school, did not get in, I met a PA when I was doing research at Yale for some transplantation work. And she introduced me to this concept of a PA in vascular surgery. So I looked into that as an alternative to reapplying to med school and, and got in, graduated in uh, 91 from Hahnemann's program in Philadelphia. And I uh, then went into v- vascular surgery as a house officer uh, here in Chicago, did that for about five years and uh, started a family with my wife, who's a nurse, and we wanted a better quality of life instead of being on call every third night. Uh, so I switched over to cardiology and, and did more outpatient uh, hypertension, dyslipidemia management types of things in an academic uh, position at the University of Illinois. And then over the next five years, uh, did that medis- medical side of, of things for patient care, uh, and then slowly got into medical education, uh, both as a, as a medical writer and uh, faculty uh, at CM- for CME programs within the PA world. So uh, peer-to-peer kinds of platforms. And then made a major career shift and became a published children's book author, mainly because I, I saw that there was a need for trying to extend the outpatient encounter time from 10 minutes to something that could the patients could sort of reinforce at home. And I thought with, with pediatrics, the best way to do that would be with the children's books and, and some spin-off stories about characters with their health messages. And that's where I'm at today. I'm doing that as a nonprofit and uh, we'll see where it goes. That's awesome, Ken. I, I'm just marveled by the fact that you said when you started in 91 versus 2020, it's been about three decades. What, what has changed in terms of how people understand and appreciate the role of a PA in, in healthcare? Yeah, I mean, when I was a student back then, um, we only had 60 programs in the U.S., you know, and, and each program had about 50 uh, or so students. So the, the gross numbers were not really there from a profession's impact perspective. For a program that started in 67 or so at Duke, when the corpsmen came back from Vietnam, uh, they tried to insert these technically trained people into the healthcare system. And uh, Dr. Stead down there implemented a training program for PAs to kind of fast pace them into healthcare delivery. Uh, so that's how it all started. And then when I went to school, you know, we were sort of in our infancy, adolescent stage in terms of, of the profession. But tons of changes since then. I mean, I, you know, I was a student when we had paper charts. I mean, I used to write my H- H&P's uh, 
you know, by hand, you know, in, in the patient in the patient charts that were, you know, in, in binders uh, on the wards. And now it's EHR, you know, I mean, everything's totally tech savvy and tech heavy. And that obviously brings along a whole new uh, set of skill sets that have to be taught to PA students. So those two, two and a half decades worth of, of clinical experience has certainly evolved. And it's probably the easiest way to describe it. How do you explain to folks that may not be familiar with the role of a PA versus an NP versus an MD versus an RN? How do you kind of break down the roles of all the different players on the team? Historically, the the sort of the pitch to the patient was that the PA was someone who could extend the time of, of the physician who was still the quarterback of the team in terms of care. And, and we could pick up some of the patient education time that was necessary, freeing up the doc to do new patient consults, more complex care, things that they were trained at that we weren't because we were trained in more of a a holistic primary care kind of a model that gave us broad-based skills, but um, not a whole lot of specific and and specialized experiences. I mean, as a student, you were taught uh, when you heard hoofbeats to think about horses and not zebras, you know, and, and the zebras were what the physicians knew about and were experienced with. So we could take care of the run of the mill things that were encountered for the most part in outpatient settings and then supplied some technical support in inpatient positions as well to, to surgeons or to special subspecialty physicians. Now, the NP thing, um, I had always worked uh, with nurse practitioners at the bedside for 20 years. And at the grassroots level, it was similar in terms of, of tasks um, that were implemented and executed. The training and background is usually a little different. From my knowledge and experience, advanced practice nurses or nurse practitioners were trained in advanced clinical care after they already had RN degrees. So they had pretty good historical track records of of patient care experience. PAs in, in in the old days were corpsmen or technically skilled individuals or EMS people that, that had some basic patient encounter experience, but but needed to be trained up in terms of medical model care. So that's why we were trained alongside medical students and physicians and, and residents is because we wanted to function within a medical model setting. So that allowed us to kind of go into all specialties because we, we worked right next to residents and, and medical students. Do you ever find that there is a communication gap? You know, obviously one group is trained in a medical model, like you're saying, and then NPs were prior RNs, and there's a whole nursing model. Yeah. Is there ever a sort of miscommunication between the people that work and have trained in these different paradigms? At the patient bedside, not so much, uh, because it was you know diagnostic or interventional or prognosis centered in terms of the the critical thinking and problem solving. But um, once you get into academic worlds and medical administrations and, and hospital settings like that, where you're further away from the actual provider the patient encounter, then, then you start getting into philosophical things and, and logistical things that sometimes muddy the water between the members of the healthcare team. But hopefully, you know, the, the current team care model which is sort of flourishing now might solve some of those communication challenges, but you know, it, it's sort of a, a moving target. 
You know, one thing you mentioned, Ken, is that, you know, you mentioned the analogy of horses versus zebras and horses are more <laughs> common and they're the ones that PAs and, and maybe NPs are, are trained really well to, to manage. I think the horses, if we're going to name them in the U.S. at least, would be diabetes, heart disease, cancers yeah. of various sorts. And these are the things that really, as you know, dominate healthcare costs and the things that affect the majority of Americans. COVID-19 is now one of those horses, unfortunately. Yeah. I'm curious to know, in terms of growth, healthcare jobs are one of the few sectors that are growing rapidly. And among them, PAs and NPs are huge growth areas. So do you see any change in the way that maybe there is public perception around it or the training itself might have to change as we start accommodating more and more students that are interested in those fields? I think that fundamentally, I mean, when you're in healthcare, and certainly my experience has been that, you know, once you've graduated as a, as a certified licensed PA healthcare person, your training didn't stop at that point. You know, this whole notion of self-directed learning and lifelong learning is why we all have to have CME credits, you know, continuing education credits to maintain our licenses. And that helps move us along the continuum of care with patients as the whole disease presentation process evolves. I mean, COVID is the perfect example. You know, three months ago, nobody knew about COVID, you know, and, and managing patients. And all of a sudden, respiratory therapists become very important members of the team, you know, because the patients are prone and they're intubated for a month or longer. And I mean, it's just incredible the types of things that are needed to be learned and, and then evaluated and then implemented with this whole new disease process that's sort of in front of every single person in the world as a, as a global pandemic. So that's, that's a great example of how we have to change with the environment. And, you know, that's a given, you know, you don't go into this profession thinking that, you know, you can practice the way you practiced 20 years ago and have beneficial outcome for your patients or, or, or optimal prognoses for your patients. If you practice in that old model, you have to stay up to date. Part of that staying up to date also, I think, reflects on the latter part of your story. You know, you transitioned and now you're an author and you're trying to get uh, information in the hands, in this case, of kids and their families. I I'm curious what you think of the role of education outside of the, the office visit and, and how that's grown or changed over time. We were very fortunate in the old days when I could spend 45 minutes with a patient to talk about their diabetes or talk about their hypertension, where now you know, with RVUs and productivity and all that stuff where you, you're only allowed to spend 10 minutes, you know, that's it. If you can't get everything, you know, reinforced or accomplished at that point with your adult patients who have multiple comorbidities or multiple questions, you're kind of stuck. So, so often the patient education element of that whole equation dropped off just because the, the treatments and the diagnostic uh, activities took up time and, and took up a big part of that isolated patient encounter in a clinic or at the bedside as an appointment kind of a thing. So, so I, as you know, as I got experience over time, I, I said, there's got to be a better way to kind of tweak that and, and sort of stretch that, you know, clinical education with the patients beyond that. Um, and pediatrics was the best way to do it because it's children's books, it's storytelling, you know, it's totally makes sense to them. You know, the health literacy issue is huge among adult patients as well as with kids. So I just, I just happened to say, let me just look at pediatric patient care and use the books as engagement tools. And that's, that's what we're doing. And we're trying to measure the effectiveness of that in patient education outside of the office setting. 
and I've been presenting posters and other you know, qualitative research data on that to show that there's a change in knowledge and then potentially a change, a longitudinal change in behavior, which is what we, what we want to do. So, Ken, you know I'm a pediatrician. I'm also, you may not know, a dad of a three-year-old, and so I'm ex yeah. really excited to read Grace Fights COVID-19 to, to Skylar. <laughs> do you mind just sharing what, what the story is about and, and any sort of even anecdotal uh, feedback you've gotten from parents and kids? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what drove it all. Um, I mean, I have uh, Musical Adventures of Grace as like a commercial little series. The spin-off stories came from those original characters. So there's about 11 characters total. So my thought was, how do I bridge my career of 20 something years with this newfound uh, notion of being a children's book author in the generic world of children's books where 5,000 are made every year, you know, either self-published or through, through traditional publishers. So I thought that maybe it was this patient encounter extension would be the way to do it. So I reached out to some of my commercial musical adventure readers and parents and, and just asked for feedback uh, in terms of what was happening in their worlds in this March, April, May period where we have this huge pandemic, this new normal, this change in social behavior that is like unprecedented. And they were a lot of them were expressing anxiety to me about how can I adequately explain coronavirus to the youngest member of the family, right? To, to a three-year-old, um, how do I explain to them that they can't see their friends? How do I explain to them that they can't go outside, that they have to wear a mask, that they're not going to school, that, you know, mommy and daddy are always around now, even if, you know, they don't like mommy and daddy anymore kind of a thing. So, so I mean, it was, it was those sort of real practical anxiety-inducing triggers for parents. And I looked around for resources. I said, you know, what's out there for COVID uh, from that perspective? So in March, I found nothing. And I said, let's use my characters and present a little COVID story to the kids to kind of make it resonate with them so that they're not living in a world that's with all these question marks running around their heads. And it gave parents a tool, an initial tool to start that conversation, or at least to trigger an ability to answer questions that the kids will come up with that they ask every day kind of, kind of a thing. So we pulled together, you know, CDC data and information back in March to talk about the basic things that, you know, how to wash your hands and, and why people are wearing masks around you and what a coronavirus looks like as a coloring picture, you know, in, in the book to kind of just kind of get them a little more comfortable with the whole idea of this coronavirus and COVID-19 infections and all that stuff um, without it being overwhelming and, and fear inducing within the kids to make it a fun filled activity as best as you could with, with this kind of a disease process. So it became an activity book. So, you know, the importance of hand washing, what a germ is, I mean, something basic is, you know, having parents explain what a virus is to them. You know, what social distancing means, you know, if you put your arms up and turn around, that's six feet between you and the next person, you know, I mean, little things like that to kind of make it relevant to them as an audience, but yet also reinforce the social behaviors that have to be done, you know, just for safety's sake. So that's what the book became, an activity book. And I give it away with grants that I have from either industry or education associations, and, and we just make it available in, in doctor's waiting rooms and uh, we're giving it to teachers if they want to use that as part of their curriculum in the fall. So that's, that's where it's going. So it's, it's good. It's a good thing. And this initiative, I mean, it strikes me as being very similar in purpose as like the Reach Out and Read movement. I, I know Barbara Bush, I believe, from the Bush Foundation was a huge supporter of this as well, right? 
Right. Yeah. We actually got a nice letter from Michelle Obama when they were in office about these books as just another way to kind of induce exercise in, in kids in a way that was relevant. Plus, I mean, the win for me is that, you know, even if they hate the characters or they don't like the story subjects, I'm helping them learn to read, you know, which is kind of the win-win, <laughs> you know, I mean, well, we're trying to help them be good citizens, you know, and, and if we can get in music vocabulary and health promotion messages on top of that, you know, that's a triple win for us. Um, so we'll, you know, we're trying to create these little health ambassadors within their families and, uh, and we'll see how we can reinforce that. I think that, that's a really beautiful way of phrasing it, creating little health ambassadors, because right now we have a lot of challenge around masks and challenge around vaccines is around the corner with COVID at least. And, and we know that there's a huge anti-vax movement because of, I think, concern around the science and the, the really kind of base of scientific literacy that we have in America and in many parts of the world as well. So I, I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah, we're careful about being apolitical for the whole thing. And I haven't got into the you know anti-vaxxer stuff too much, but we do explain what a vaccine is in the COVID book, you know, just very basic so that they, you know, they're not afraid of uh, needles and all that stuff. It strikes me that this is foundational though, like this whole idea of like creating foundational appreciation, if, if nothing else for both literacy, but as well as science seems really, really cool. And being led by someone from your background is, is even cooler. Yeah, it's, it was fun to be able to find that bridge, you know, between my current life and my previous world. We did a, a little subset project with, with about 138 elementary school kids, uh, kindergarten, first grade kids. We gave them a low salt, Melody's favorite recipes, a low salt diet focus for a population of Hmong children who came from um, Southeast Asia uh, to the United States. So there's about 60, 100,000 of them in United, living in the United States. But we knew that that population was predisposed for high blood pressure versus the general population. And we didn't get into the genetics of it or any of that stuff, but we knew that if we could influence their dietary choice of the amount of salt that they used in, uh, in their day-to-day -day lives. Um, we had the teachers teach that through a story about Melody in the classroom, and then they had homework assignments to come back, you know, like a month later with what salt substitutes the family was able to use just to kind of cut back on, you know, how much sodium intake they were, they were doing. Because, you know, like everyone else, we all eat junk food, right? And, and this was just a way to kind of target that uh, behavior change. And we found out that, you know, prior to the reading sessions, the kids thought salt was good because it helped make food taste good, you know, and, you know, something as simple as that. But then they, we did a follow-up survey after they went through their reading sessions and they, all of a sudden they learned that too much salt is maybe not a good thing for my body and too much salt is, is not healthy. And, you know, those kinds of switches in terms of knowledge gained. And then the thought was then, okay, let's take that knowledge gained as these little health ambassadors for their families and see how they can implement it in the home setting and change behavior at the kitchen table through dietary and recipe switches. But we do, we definitely want to make them champions because, you know, the adults are lost cause. You know, we're, <laughs> we're, uh, we're managing the complications of the disease process with the adults and, and it's, it's much smarter from a health policy perspective to change that amongst the kids, you know, before they, they get to a point where they're going down that slippery slope of cardiovascular disease, so. Yeah, my, my parents and my son obviously represent different generations. And when my son, when I've told my parents to do X, Y, or Z, it doesn't happen. When my three-year-old tells them, believe it or not, it happens. You know, like yeah. for example, he'll talk about cane sugar 
and limiting the amount of cane sugar. And that phrase now sticks and my mom talks about it. And so I'm like, wait, that was from Skylar. So I, I totally love your approach. It's so, so beautiful and elegant. I'm curious, Ken, do you sense that NPs, family practice PAs, are they also kind of on board with the idea of using these you know, children's books and, and children as change agents? Does that seem like it resonates or do you feel like that's still maybe a few years out before that becomes more mainstream? I think it's, it's a few years out. What we do do though, to sort of set the table for that is we offer them copies of the books and just throw them in your waiting room. You know, just leave them there passively for your patients. If there's an interest, sort of the next level then is to kind of say, okay, let's create a poster that they can put in the exam room right over the exam table and say, hey, did you read about Melody uh, and her salt story? Did you read about Maestro Vic and his toothbrushing uh, conducting orchestra story, you know, in the waiting room? And if not, you know, then they can use that character as a way to kind of initiate a conversation. But yeah, for, for right now, it's early stage knowledge advancement. The behavioral stuff is going to take a while. Well, I, I'd like to just ask this question of you. We're always thinking about ways that we can raise the line of healthcare capacity, not just now, but in the future. And you're at this beautiful kind of crossroads of both having one foot in the world of PAs as well as NPs. And so you, you understand that so, so well. What are some things you tell kind of current uh, students that are training to become NPs or PAs about how they can be most effective, uh, not just in the short term, let's say COVID-19, but, but even long term, uh, as we need to scale up our healthcare capacity as a country? Yeah, from the primary care point of view, it's, it's always, you know, whole patient, whole family, whole community kind of a thing, the holistic attack on a continuum of care. So, so the whole patient-centered care thing, the patient-centered medical homes, the neighborhoods, that stuff, we continually try to reinforce that as, as part of the team care thing. You know, they don't have to be the one source of care or, or information. So the burden is not on, on them per se. You know, when they, when they get out there, it's important to use your colleagues and tap into their expertise. And, you know, the football analogy is always a good one. You know, the doc is the quarterback, but, you know, you need wide receivers and you need running backs to score the touchdown. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of a nice visual for them to kind of understand that, you know, it's not all about them and it's, it's, it's more about the team and don't forget the patient, you know, and when you don't forget the patient, then you get into the whole disparities of care thing, the comorbidity thing, the social drivers of, of challenges, you know, those, those you can become as active as you want in your community, but you know, in the back of your mind, you're thinking about Mrs. Jones, who's an African-American female with diabetes versus Mr. Smith, who's a 62-year-old white patient. You know, they may have a totally different scenario in terms of successful management. That comes with the training and that comes with experience and, and sort of what you're looking at as optimal care. That's awesome. I, I think for so long, the patient has been a spectator in the stands yeah, uh, to yeah. carry out your analogy. And maybe maybe at some point soon, they might become the quarterback kind of managing their healthcare team uh, as they see fit, uh, as, you, as you said. So Ken, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time you know, for being with us. I'm Rishi Desai. Thanks for joining today's show. Uh, remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We'll see you next time. Thanks a lot. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. 
You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.